Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and today I'll be speaking with Nick Deal and Rachel Visconti. Nick is currently serving as the ombudsperson for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Rachel is the director of the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program at Harvard Law School. Good afternoon, and thank you both for coming on the podcast today. Okay. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. We're excited to have you. And today we're going to be talking about your upcoming webinar presented by the Dispute Resolution Section's Ombuds Committee. And both of you will be hosting that uh, on June 5th at about 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, but before we get into the details of your presentation, I'd like to start by uh, getting a little bit of background on, on each of you. Um, so starting with Nick, uh, you currently serve as the ombudsperson for MIT, right? That's right. One of two ombuds here at, a, at MIT. Yeah. And I'm sure this is the obvious question that you get all the time, and I apologize in advance. But can you tell us what an ombudsperson is and what an ombudsperson does? Sure, absolutely. So um, an ombudsperson, uh, in the context of an organization, um, and so there, there are different types of, uh, of roles for ombuds, um, but the role that I play is called an organizational ombuds. And um, so I'm directly employed by MIT as a staff member, and my role is to help anybody associated with MIT to kind of navigate difficult situations and um, in a confidential environment. So uh, anyone, again, associated with the MIT community can contact me um, off the record, and um, I am not an advocate for the person who reaches out to uh, to the office, nor do I represent uh, MIT as an institution. I'm kind of a neutral third party uh, within to try to help resolve things informally. Um, frequently, that's providing coaching to people who are uh, in conflict. Uh, sometimes it's about helping people understand uh, and navigate questions about policies. Um, other times, uh, there are uh, conflicts um, at, a, at a departmental level, and, and we can help engage, um, again, first maybe in coaching. So we do mediation at times, uh, facilitated discussions between people, and we can also work with groups. Uh, and the final aspect that I'll add is that uh, all of this, we, um, although it's off the record, and again, we promise confidentiality to, to the people who come to our office, um, we give feedback at an aggregate level to the institution about concerns that are coming up uh, repeatedly uh, with the idea that we certainly want to strengthen MIT and to uh, think about how to prevent uh, these recurring concerns from coming up in the future. Well, thank you. That's an excellent and very detailed description. I, I know ombudsperson is kind of a, an unusual term. And I think it's really helpful to have uh, a definition like that so people have a better understanding of what, what that means and the important role that an ombudsperson plays in an organization uh, like MIT or like uh, a large company. Um, I think my next question is, how did you get to be an ombudsperson? How did your career in dispute resolution bring you into that role? Yeah. Well, I joke that it uh, it was not my my dream as a child to become an ombudsperson. Um, 
But uh, this is actually a, a second career for me. My, my first career was in the corporate communications world. And um, when I was uh, I was doing public relations and internal communications, uh, and um, I learned about the conflict resolution field um, when I was actually on a business trip, and I, I met a mediator, and the work sounded very interesting to me, so I started to, to look into that and um, became a mediator in New York City. I was doing community mediation. And um, that kind of led me on the path to just exploring the, the different uh, options for um, alternative dispute resolution. And I learned about the uh, ombuds world and uh, uh, was really intrigued by the work. So um, I actually took an internship first at Pace University, and that was my big moment of a career change was uh, was going from corporate communications to uh, to the internship. And then I was fortunate enough to um, uh, get a job as an associate ombuds at Princeton University. And um, since that time, I've also worked at the National Institutes of Health, uh, American Red Cross. And my last position was with the Asian Development Bank, um, all serving in the role of, of organizational ombuds. Um, so it's been a really interesting path in seeing these different organizations. And like you said, there probably aren't a lot of, you know, children and teenagers that want to be ombuds when they grow up, but for someone who's getting their start in dispute resolution, uh, what's your advice on someone to someone who says ombuds, uh, being an ombuds person might be the career choice for me? What advice would you give someone who's younger and looking towards that? Mm. Well, I think that there's certainly some some good training for ombuds. Um, First, I mean, there, there is the actual course that the International Ombudsman Association uh, provides and foundations of, uh, of, of practice. Um, in addition to that, the background as a mediator or other um, uh, training in, in dispute resolution is very helpful. Uh, I think that there, you know, there are actually a number of elements that kind of play into effectiveness as an ombuds. Uh, one is just that kind of the, uh, um, concepts around conflict resolution. Uh, it's also important to be able to know uh, and how to analyze an organization and the power structures within an organization, how to navigate those, um, and to, I think, have some experience in, uh, uh, you know, individually on, on uh, dealing with difficult situations and effectively uh, working with people. So there are a lot of different things that play into uh, effectiveness in, in that regard. Um, and sometimes it's just looking for the opportunities to get some experience, whether that's um, as I did in an in internship in an ombuds office or, uh, you know, kind of playing that role uh, in, in some regard, um, even if a person is not formally uh, granted the, the role of, of ombuds. Um, so I think there's some, some study involved and some, some practice that prepare people. Well, you mentioned um, education and training, and I, I think that's a good segue into uh, Rachel's position. Um, Rachel, so as I understand, you're the director of the um, HNMCP, the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in that role and how you got to got to be in that position? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the our our um program in broadly speaking provides opportunities for students mostly here at the law school but also some cross registry some cross registrants 
um, to learn about different methods of engaging conflict. So on the broadest level, um, our program includes the Harvard Mediation Program, Harvard Law School Negotiators, Harvard Negotiation Law Review, um, some ongoing dialogue work that we've been doing for a few years here. But the heart of the program and, and what we'll be talking about on the webinar is really our clinical work. Um, so in that context, um, our students who have some experience in negotiation, all the students who register for the course have to take a prerequisite semester-long negotiation workshop. It's very intensive. Um, and we pair those students up with clients who have needs in the area, in the broad area of, of dispute systems design. Um, so effectively, clients who are looking for some help in assessing or designing more effective ways of dealing with the varieties of disputes that might come up for them in their organizations. Um, and our orientation, I would say similarly to um, the way that, that Nick was talking a bit about his role and the ombuds role, we really think about conflict as a source of value, um, as a signal that there's an opportunity to, you know, to learn more, to engage in a way that will enhance how people can work together. And so the heart of our project is really around having students learn how to conduct an effective assessment, um, to how to understand what disputes exist in an organization, whether they're being brought to the surface or not. Um, and then thinking about who is involved in those disputes, who's impacted by those disputes, and understanding what their experience is and making a set of recommendations around how either existing processes can be improved or new processes can be created that help to uh, manage those more effectively um, and, you know, help, help people to work together in a way that feels more productive. Um, so my path to working with HMCP um, was, I, I guess, a, maybe a circuitous one. So I, I, I was a student at Harvard Law School. I graduated in 2001, and my um, my trajectory was very much informed by having taken the negotiation workshop in my in my 1L year. Um, I really didn't have any any particular interest in dispute resolution or in negotiation before um, signing up for the class, and it really just had a really profound impact on me, on the way I thought about the role of lawyers um, in conflict, and ultimately on, you know, the, the course of my life. But, but um, I didn't go directly into this work. I started in private practice in a law firm that no longer no longer exists. Um, it, at that time, it was called Bingham Dana, um, and I was there for about three years. And my experience in practice was that while almost all of the cases that I worked on ended up settling, they almost inevitably settled after an enormous amount of value had been lost, after relationships had, in many cases, um, degenerated really significantly, um, and points at which the, the clients themselves really um, had had lost a lot of the excitement or whatever it was that had brought them to their work to begin with. 
And so that felt really incongruous to me with a lot of what I'd learned in the workshop and the way that I thought about negotiation. Um, and that's kind of the, you know, the legal work piece, but there was a lot of that that related to the ways, the client management pieces, the ways that we worked with our clients. I think, um, you know, for a lot of large law firms, you know, the the rates that are being charged are high enough that in many cases, I think lawyers feel like the right answer when a client asks you to do something is some version of yes. Um, and the opportunity for learning more, and I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I worked with some amazing attorneys who were, you know, thoughtful and deft client managers, but I, but I also worked with some that I think um, were could have benefited from thinking a little bit more about how they worked with their clients in terms of learning a little more about their interests and, and thinking a little more collaboratively about what might make sense in, in the longer term. And I think there were some structural barriers to that. So I was there for about um, three years. I learned an enormous amount. I met some amazing people. Um, and around the time that I um, – had my first daughter, I ended up switching and going to work at Vantage Partners, which is um, a consulting organization here in the Boston area. I was there for about nine years, and in that role, I was um, doing a lot of um, education and training work with corporate clients primarily and helping them think about how they could bring to bear more effective negotiation skills, um, difficult conversation skills, influence skills. Um, ways of managing change within their organizations. And then in, in 2013, I came back to, back to Harvard Law School, to the very fifth floor of Pound Hall, where I had spent so much of my law school experience, um, and have been here ever since. Well, that sounds like a very interesting journey, and it's indicative of what I hear from a lot of ADR practitioners, that they started out in law school or litigation and kind of discovered the world of ADR and found unique and diverse uh, way different types of jobs that I, from what I've heard from a lot of people that they didn't even know existed before they started to dive more in depth into what ADR is. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's get more into the topic of the webinar that's coming up next week. Um, as I understand it, the session will talk about how the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program, as you said, works with various organizations um, to assess their ADR programs at, at the same time, um, training students in different uh, types of ADR practice. And just, I guess, as a, as a background for the program itself, um, what can people that attend uh, expect to, to get out of the program, or what will they, they learn um, after completing the, the webinar? Mm, great question. Um, I, I can offer a take on this, and, and, and Nick, you can certainly um, pipe in as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I think um, the um, – at least, you know, my hope is that for, for folks who are listening to the webinar, we can accomplish a couple things. I think for, for my part, you know, describing a little bit about um, the work that we do, because I think that it is a really important 
uh, area and one that doesn't always get enough attention in terms of, um, you know, thinking about folks who might be thinking about, you know, where might I focus my professional efforts. I think the dispute systems design arena is one that really offers a lot um, for folks who are interested in ADR. And so I hope we might inspire some folks who may not have a lot of experience in that arena to think about what it would look like um, to, to take on some of that work, even within the context of something else that they're doing. Um, I, I also hope if there are folks who are listening who are in organizations who have um, challenges that they're facing where they think that it might be helpful for them to, you know, work with some clinical students that they'll, that they'll reach out and we'll, we'll uh, be able to see whether there are some projects that we might be able to um, be helpful. Um, I also hope they'll learn um, about how incredible Nick is and how thoughtful he is. Um, we've done a number of projects with Nick and they've invariably been incredibly valuable for our students um, in part because Neil is a really um, just a very thoughtful um, practitioner, but also teacher and someone who I think is very open to um, feedback and in sort of a continuous um, process of thinking about how to improve things and make things better. And I would love for people to hear and be inspired by his example. Oh. <laughs> That's very kind, Rachel. My <laughs> pleasure. Um, I'm, I'm blushing. Um, no, I well, thanks for, thanks for those kind words. I think you know, as a three-time client of HNMCP, I'm a huge proponent and uh, and fan. And um, during the webinar, uh, part of what I'd like to talk about is um, specifically how uh, I'll give an overview of three different projects, but I want to dive down into one. Um, partly to help people think about how um, how their conflict resolution programs can be measured um, and to think about um, the importance of taking a step back. I think you know my experience um, with the uh, with the student teams uh, was that going through the process of even identifying the project and looking at the parameters for it um, required a lot of self reflection thinking about how we were doing things and why we were doing them the way we were. Um, so even explaining the work itself is, is a good uh, first step. And then um, getting outside feedback and, and kind of working through, uh, you know, what, what one might do differently is really important. Uh, I think it also led a, a lot of credibility to these programs um, when a person can say this this outside organization um, from Harvard, you know, students from Harvard Law School helped us in doing an assessment. Um, and for me, that was really important, both for the practical sense of being able to kind of hone or shape things and, and maybe consider doing things differently, um, but also um, in the uh, in the points of being able to, to show the effectiveness of the, uh, of the program. Um, so for me, it, uh, obviously, I was a fan because I've, I've worked with them three times, and um, and each has been really valuable for me as a practitioner, and I think for the uh, for the organizations where I've where I've uh, worked on these assessments. One thing I was thinking of when I was looking at the list of clients that's on the clinical programs website, and Rachel, it looks like you have a huge variety of 
clients that are coming to you to work on their ADR processes. Uh, yeah. But I guess I have a question for both of you from opposite sides. Uh, Rachel, how do you, if you select clients at all, um, as opposed to just taking applications, I, I suppose, um, what do you look for in a potential client, and how do you make that selection? And, Nick, from your side, um, when you were um, a prospective client, I guess, what were you looking for um, when you first heard about the clinical program, and what drew you to um, the clinical program in the first place? So I first learned about um, uh, about the clinical program from uh, a former colleague of mine at, at NIH, uh, a mentor of mine, Howard Gadlin, who um, who worked with HNMCP um, after he after I had been working at NIH, uh, and I heard about the wonderful project that was done and, and the um, the value of the results. Uh, so that was what inspired me to look into the program and. Um, uh, you know, I think that uh, certainly it's it's kind of interesting, uh, even from that stage of thinking about what is it about the work that I'm doing that should be measured or evaluated? Um, are there gaps in the service that we provide? Uh, should we be doing things differently? And um, and so I think one of the challenges maybe is um, uh, when I was first looking at, at a project, thinking about the scope of it and how my first idea was let's measure everything and then I kind of came to the reality that this is a, a limited project and it has to be fairly focused um, on something that's measurable and, and practical to do within uh, a few months time. So, uh, so actually having conversations about the types of projects that would be both beneficial to the organization, to my organization, and also for the students um, to have the experience and, and something that would uh, advance their their understanding of um, of programs and and uh, um, something that's manageable for the students. So I think it's really important. And finding that match, I think, is is key. Um, so that's kind of how I I learned about HNMCP and and uh, also you know my growth and understanding about what kind of a what kind of a project would be good. Yeah, so I guess for my um just to, to build on that from my my side of things, I would say um, you know, you're right, Adam, we do have a real wide variety of different types of projects and different contexts in which we do projects. So we've worked with, you know, federal agencies, nonprofits, religious organizations, startups schools, companies, um, a pretty broad swath of different types of organizations and with also a lot of geographical variations. So we do some projects that are, you know, local or domestic, but we also do a lot of international projects. Um, so there isn't anything that I would say is off the cuff, you know, sort of from the from the jump a limiting factor. Um, what when we start to narrow the funnel a bit is um, by thinking about first and foremost in my mind is this a context where we think that we can offer value right do we think that the um, the knowledge that the the students have coupled with you know they're closely supervised by a, a, a clinical supervisor um, but do we feel like it's a context in which over the course of a 12-week semester 
they're going to be able to develop um, some some useful insights that can help move the needle for the client and offer some value for the client. Our goal is always to be helpful, but at a very minimum, we like to make sure we're not leaving things worse than we found them. Um, so, so we you know we try to figure out does it feel like we can offer some value? Um, does it feel like something that will be a good learning experience for the students? Um, and a piece of that, so almost all of our, our projects involve an assessment component, which does typically involve um, identifying and speaking with stakeholders. So that's often a question that we have as we think about um, what, what projects feel viable is are there um, stakeholders that the students will be able to access and work with um, so that in addition to learning more from multiple perspectives about what's happening on the ground, um, they also have an ability to learn about assessment and, and how we work to diagnose in, in conflict situations. Um, and, you know, when we, you know, we like to choose projects that we think are important um, to the client, so something where we think they're likely uh, to act on, you know, whatever advice it is that we come up with, which isn't to say that they're, you know, necessarily, it's not even our aspiration that they, um, you know, take everything that we say and, and run off and immediately implement it. We're very mindful of the fact that while we hope we have a, a good and rich working perspective on what's happening on the ground, it would be, you know, absurd to imagine that over the course of 12 weeks, we've developed, uh, you know, a, a nuanced, an understanding that would supersede all of the knowledge that <laughs> that, that a, a client organization might, might already have. So I think we, you know, certainly have a good deal of humility. We hope that we can offer, a, you know, a perspective that is helpful and that might, you know, offer some valuable ideas and insights and that, that there st will still be opportunity for the client to reflect on and think about, um, what and how they choose to do with the recommendations that we might make. Um, but but if we had the sense that it was, you know, not something that was important or felt like a priority, that's a situation where I would say we would run the risk of, of doing harm because we would be um, setting up a situation where stakeholders would have an expectation that there was a real interest in working to improve the way that disputes were handled where there might not be really, you know, it might not have sort of the um, the uh, real commitment behind it. So, so that's one factor. <clears throat> Another factor that we think about when we get down to kind of the nitty gritty is what the given mix of projects looks like in a in a semester, so we just we try to make sure that in each semester there are a mix of things that will appeal to the different students that we have. So you know we've done you know projects that you know there's there's often a, a there's a background context. There's also typically you know an ADR context as well. So some projects you know as Nick has talked about his projects, which is related to ombuds work. We've done projects. Um, where we're looking at mediation systems, where we are looking at 
uh, restorative justice systems where we are looking at different court-related processes, where we're looking at systems that combine, you know, multiple different processes arranged in different ways. Um, so we try to think about having a mix of ADR contexts, a geographical mix, a topical mix, um, so that in any given, you know, in any given semester, students have uh, some some ability to select for things that they are interested in because the way we staff projects is by matching a student team for the duration of the semester. So while we typically have six projects each semester, um, each student team is is focused on one project from the beginning to the end, and they really own that project. The project really begins with the beginning of the semester and closes with the end of the semester. Uh, so we do we do take applications, and that's a little bit about how we choose among them. Fascinating, and uh, frankly, one of my questions that I had coming into this was, what types of systems or um, practices do you often see uh, being implemented? But from what you've described to me, it sounds like your assessment is so holistic that there really isn't a, a standard or something that is typical. It sounds like you evaluate each client on a very individual level and come up with something unique to each client. And that's, um, I think, the, the big impact of this program is that everyone gets something unique and particularized to their needs. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that's very important to us because we've seen a lot of contexts in which if you just, you know, pick up and pick up something that might be quite successful in one context, and put it in a different context with a different culture, with a different set of expectations, with a different history, um, things can often go go quite awry. So we do try to make sure that anything that we're recommending is really grounded in what we've learned in doing the assessment. Um, and, and one of the things we try to be sure that we do in our projects is to make quite clear, to really lay out for the client, here's what we've learned um, here's what we've learned from studying your organization and talking to people in the organization and people who may be outside of the organization but affected in some way. Um, here's what we've learned from looking at the research in the field and thinking about how, thing, how people have engaged similar situations in other contexts. And, and based on that, here are the recommendations that we would make um, so that we try to make sure that, you know, clients have all the information that would be helpful for them to make a decision about whether and how they might want to move forward. Adam, can I add one thing um, that I think yeah, is of course. maybe not <clears throat> so um, apparent, but I, I really appreciated in the projects that I did the, the question at the very start about stakeholder buy-in and making sure that, um, uh, that this isn't kind of an isolated project that a person is trying to do without um, without getting the support of the organization. And I think that going through these each of these projects um, really helped me in building relationships internally, uh, both in being transparent about my hope in strengthening the practice, um, but also involving uh, other offices, other colleagues, um, in the project itself, and I just want to comment that the that the students and the uh, um, advisors who were involved in the projects um, 
all got incredible feedback, uh, not only from, from me, but from uh, colleagues who were working with them. And uh, as they did interviews or maybe, you know, um, tested a, a survey with, with others. Um, so being part of, of an assessment and involving others within the organization, I think, again, builds the bonds. Uh, it gives them a stake in, in making sure that the project goes well. Um, and there, so there are a lot of a lot of things that are very valuable in that process um, that I think HNMCP handles well um, that go beyond just getting some some feedback or recommendations. Uh, so I I really appreciated that in the uh, in the work that we did together. Glad to hear that. Well, Nick and Rachel, uh, thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. You've Given everyone who's listening a lot of great information about the um, HNMCP and about the webinar that's coming up, if anyone has any interest in learning more about the uh, HNMCP or is interested in potentially becoming a client, they should certainly turn in next Wednesday, um, June 5th at 1 p.m. for the full webinar, Reducing Barriers and Raising Effectiveness, Assessing ADR Programs. And we'll provide a link in the podcast description and on the podcast website for anyone who wants to attend that. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or discuss regarding the web, uh, the webinar coming up? No, I think we'd just love to have, well, not me. I'd just love to have um, some folks join us and, and deepen the conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a specific case that we can share. So. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast and for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are looking forward to learning more and to attending the webinar next week. So, great. Well, thank, thank you so again. much. Yeah. Thanks so much, Adam. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you in our next episode.